technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse. The lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or save, whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. Hey guys, so as you learned uh, by watching the What Is Money show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the world today. And so this begs the question, which I'm often asked, how does one build their Bitcoin position? And the strategy really is simple. I suggest first you decide on an initial portfolio percentage allocation and a target portfolio percentage allocation. Go ahead and establish the initial position for the one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging towards your target portfolio uh, percentage. And you can also complement this by buying Bitcoin price dips to further increase that position and reduce your cost basis. And finally, I suggest to everyone to take custody of their Bitcoin, to move all of their Bitcoin into self-sovereign custody. Because again, Bitcoin left on an exchange is not Bitcoin, it's a Bitcoin IOU. And for those of you living in the U.S., there's no better choice than Swan Bitcoin to do all of the above. So Swan lets you set up automatic recurring buys for Bitcoin, also lets you facilitate one-time buys for, for buying price dips. And finally, they let you do, set up automatic recurring withdrawals into cold storage, which is a really big deal. And all of this they provide at the lowest fees in the business, uh, approximately 0.99% per year for weekly buys of $50 or more, which is about 60, I'm sorry, 70 to 80% less than Coinbase by comparison. And the best part, Swan is a Bitcoin focused education first company. Uh, they, they publish great content on their Swan Signal Live podcast. Uh, they publish a lot of content in their newsletter and website. And their, their team is just the absolute dream team of Bitcoin. Uh, I would say check out their roster. It's growing every day, but, but it's a super impressive group of individuals. And so with that, I would highly recommend you check out swanbitcoin.com backslash breedlove. You get $10 in free Bitcoin for signing up. Um, and it lets you stack sats with myself and the rest of uh, the Swan team as we continue the fight to restore freedom truth and virtue in the world through Bitcoin. All right, thanks. All right, guys, we are back with Sailor Series Episode 7. And today we're going to be diving even deeper into Bitcoin theory. And as always, if you guys haven't seen Episodes 1 through 6 that led us to this point, I highly suggest you go and check those out. Um, they, they build a lot of foundation that we draw upon continually as we progress further into the series. So today we're going to discuss Bitcoin 
as a monetary missile, which if you remember from episode one, uh, missiles are one of the, the quintessential Stone Age technologies, so we're going to draw analogies to that. We're also going to talk about Bitcoin as the creature that never sleeps, uh, akin to the great Kraken itself, um, and why this makes it a superior form of money. Uh, we'll also look at the effects of humans intervening in complex systems and what that does um, to complex systems and the consequences that it generates. And then finally, we'll look at the, some of the reasons why Bitcoin may actually be the sole sound store of value for the 21st century. Uh, we'll compare it to alternatives and, and draw um, reasons why it is superior across a number of dimensions. Then we're going to get into the, the Televian concept of via negativa and how it relates to Bitcoin and technology more generally. Um, finally, we get into a really interesting aspect of Bitcoin, um, not often discussed, and that is the we, we look at the fanaticism of Bitcoin maximalists as an asset, as a, a um, value creator for this asset class itself. Um, and that leads us naturally into the discussion of Bitcoin as a religion. So I'm going to go deep again today. I'm really excited for this one. So let's dive in. Bitcoin is a monetary technology that we're able to deliver with much more force. Force and the, the physics definition being mass times acceleration or mass also being equal to energy. So we're able to channel this energy in a very targeted and specified format at a very high speed and recalibrate almost instantaneously to always optimize our yield, right? Doesn't it, doesn't it sound like a cruise missile? Yeah. yeah. Or a projectile weapon. Right. And, and we're, back, we're back to the issue of what happened to the guys without the guns when the guys with the guns showed up. Right. And what happened to the guys without the airplanes when the guys with the airplanes showed up. So you're holding the high ground, the proverbial high ground behind the wall of encrypted energy, but you can also send these financial or, or uh, I guess you call them financial weapons in a way, out in a very targeted fashion based on what the market's signaling, right? What's the demand for, for loans or what have you. Um, but yeah. In it, yeah, in, in theory, right, isn't a crypto bank the smartest, fastest, strongest financial entity in the world right right because it, it's going to be working while everybody's sleeping just like just like youtube and facebook and apple networks they're working while you're sleeping 24 7 365 and to a certain extent you see that metaphorically if you just look at uh you know, a crypto exchange and you look at the trading of Bitcoin and it's working while you're sleeping. And if you try to watch it, you get exhausted, right? All, all traditional assets are constructed to trade from 9.30 in the, in the morning till four in the evening because human beings needed to watch over them. Right. And that's right. about the, the maximum, you know, endurance of a human being. And uh, Bitcoin, you know, when you go when you go beyond that, right? You're going from like 35 hours a week to 168 hours a week. It's five times as much. People think, oh, it's a little bit more. It's not a little bit more, no. right? It's, it's it's five x the bandwidth, just the trading. And then when you consider that it's trading, it's trading every hour. 
in every currency pair. Everywhere, yeah. Everywhere. On, on a host of exchanges. This is um, extremely high bandwidth price discovery transparency, right? The highest bandwidth price discovery, the highest bandwidth market of any security, of any asset ever, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that, I mean, Bitcoin really is the perfected uh, asset, or at least the apex asset in, in uh, the financial jungle, because it's the creature that never sleeps, that's an octopus, that's working everywhere all the time. I mean, that, that, the, you know, the metaphor Kraken, it's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah, really. You know, because it it's always going, and it's never stopping. And remember... Remember back to our previous discussion, I, I was saying in Jurassic Park, you know, the guy picks a fight with the little dinosaur and then he realizes there's a hundred of those little dinosaurs and they don't sleep. And when you pick a fight with the swarm and the swarm doesn't sleep and you sleep, you realize you're going to lose, yeah. right? You're, you're, you're doomed. There's that point when you realize you're doomed because you can't keep up with a software creature with a million heads that is continuously working everywhere all the time. And here's the thing you know, the thing that's working, that's dominating the market in Bitcoin all the time, it's the strongest version of the creature in that domain, not the weakest. Right. Right? Yeah. The, weak, the weak parts of the herd get called out. They're being deprived of their capital. They're being squeezed out. You know, and you see it with like the Mount Gox disaster, you, you know, anything that doesn't quite work. And so this asset class is a living asset class. And its strength comes from the fact that that uh, it's being developed. It's not um, it's not constrained by uh, the lowest common denominator. It's strengthened by the highest common denominator. Right. If there's somebody in the world. If there's, if there's an exchange in the world that can actually do this better, faster, stronger, and it comes onto the Bitcoin network, they will set the price. Right. Right. And yeah. even if you're just hodling, if you're just sitting there holding an asset, let's say I'm holding $100 million of Bitcoin and I'm wishing it would go up in value. And then let's say there's a million Castilian laws in the United States that prevent people from trading index futures on Bitcoin. But somebody in Malta is able to do it, or somebody in Singapore is able to launch that exchange. So Singapore launches an exchange that matches billions of dollars of forward index buyers or option buyers to billions of dollars of call buyers. And that attracts tens of billions of dollars of capital in the market because it solves the yield curve problem. Let's say hypothetically, somebody on a centralized or decentralized exchange or lightning network solves the yield curve problem. If I could give you 8% risk-free yield on 10-year money, presumably you can take $100 billion and you can take that money and you can short fiat, short the dollar, go along the Bitcoin, squeeze the 8% yield on $100 billion, make yourself $8 billion a year. If you can figure out how to do that in Singapore, you set up in Singapore, you do it in Singapore, what happens to the price of Bitcoin? Goes up. What happens to the hodler sitting in Schenectady, New York, that never did anything, that didn't touch it, that doesn't know about it, that doesn't understand it with their little one Bitcoin? 
has been strengthened. <laughs> the network is getting stronger based on the highest common denominator. Anybody in the world that with a better idea that plugs in the network is lifting everybody. And that's totally different than a conventional centralized uh, traditional structure where one regulator might create one set of rules that constrain and hobble. Yeah, right. Everybody. The asymmetry has been inverted, right, from the Great Wall of China, where if there's one failure at any point, the whole thing's compromised. But now it's you inverted that asymmetry such that if there's one benefit, it benefits everyone. And that's what it's like when you got a swarm. If if the herd is attacked by a predator and one of the creatures figures out how to kill the predator, mm -hmm. and the ones that couldn't figure it out die, the ones that do figure out live, they procreate, pretty soon they can all kill the predator, right? Mm -hmm. They all have that immunity, right? That's herd immunity, whatever that might be. And um, and that's the beauty of Bitcoin. You know, I, I had this uh, I had this tweet, was, you know, I put it out there. I said, you know, lions get tired of chasing the antelope. Lions complain to the ranger. The ranger hobbles the antelope. Lions get fat, dumb, and happy. Antelope all die. Lions all die. Ranger blames on the weather. <laughs> right. And that is a metaphor for a lot of stuff. Generally, yeah. generally it's, it's a metaphor for how you, uh, how you destroy a crypto network by trying to make transaction fees lower. It's like someone complained about transaction fees, so we try to change everything to drive the transaction fees down because somehow it's abomination in the eyes of God that people get charged for transactions. The antelope ran too fast, not fair, <laughs> slow them down. The transaction fees were too high, not fair, make them lower. We'll hobble them for you, okay? It's also a metaphor for interest rates. Interest rates are too high, I can't afford a loan, make them go down. Right. It's also a metaphor for competition. My competitor goes too fast, they're making it too difficult, slow them down. Make the foreigners stop that, make somebody do something, right? It's, it's somebody trying to regulate or manage something because they think it's a problem. But at the end of the day, you're messing with mother nature, right? You're, right. Gonna, you're in a war with nature. It's not going to end well. At the end of the day, lazy lions should die and slow antelope get eaten and fast, strong, healthy antelope procreate and fast, strong, healthy lions feed and the lions get better and the antelope get better and they live in an ecosystem. And if you remove the predator, you know, all sorts of crazy bad things happen. Right. You, know? you, you throw off the balance. This, is, this goes all the way back to your original point that there's no fair fight in the world, right? And that when human intervention tries to make that fight more fair, the intervention into a complex system throws off all these unintended consequences. And I think that is one of the things that's gotten us into the situation we're in today with low and negative interest rates, right? We've constantly trying to introduce an economic analgesic to paper over 
the business cycle or paper over losses. Um, and we're just, we've distorted the natural price discovery function of the market. And so now we're in this, we're in these totally asinine times with, uh, you know, stock market at all time high and 40 million people unemployed. So I think that, and this is one of Taleb's main themes is human beings have to strive to not intervene with mother nature. Like if mother nature has been doing, executing a certain strategy for a long time, we have to assume that it's being done for a reason, no matter what science tells us. You know, it, interest rate is the time value of money, but if, but if interest rate is the time value of money, it's the time value of energy. Mm-hmm. And if it's the time value of energy, interest rate is the value of time. And, and maybe if we come back to thermodynamics, the rule of thermodynamics is time cannot go backwards. Entropy is in, time must move forward. Trying to drive interest rates to zero or negative is a war on time. You're trying to make time go backwards. You're trying to make water flow uphill. You're trying to reverse gravity. You're trying to reverse the laws of thermodynamics. It's, it's me saying to you, Robert, you know, will you give me everything that you own? Give it to me. You go without. I'm going to keep it. And when you die, I'm going to give a third of it back to your heirs. Right. And, and so the only way you would do that is if you thought the future of your life had negative value. Right. Like if you knew you were going to be a serial axe murderer killer and you knew it in advance and you thought, you know, I should be deprived of the future of my life because I'm really a liability to humanity. Maybe. But if you actually thought that the future had any value, you couldn't make that trade. It makes no no rational person would say, I'm going to give you everything I have in return for a half of it back when I'm dead. Right. It's so moronic, right? It's just insane. And so when I'm trying to drive the interest rate to zero or negative, I'm actually trying to reverse time and make it run backwards. I'm first trying to stop it, and then I'm trying to make it run backwards. I'm trying to reverse entropy. I'm trying to put the genie back in the bottle. Thermodynamics, the laws of physics, the laws of humanity, they all say it can't be done, right? And and only something, you know, catastrophic will ensue. Let me ask you. So this is interesting. We have a legacy financial system that's trying to grind against or move countervailing to the laws of thermodynamics or the thermodynamic arrow of time. And here we have this new system introduced in the form of Bitcoin that more that nearly perfectly mirrors the laws of thermodynamics it aligns itself with the arrow of time and the, the thermodynamic arrow of time it seems almost serendipitous that bitcoin is released at this time when the system is starting to come apart in this decade do you think this is almost like an autoimmune response by the the global human hive mind yeah <laughs> I well like I I do because you know look at what Satoshi put in the Genesis block. Right. 
You know, it, it's pretty clear that Satoshi was uh, was troubled, right? Was was inspired, at, you know, antagonized, irritated enough, right, to do this. Humans solve problems, right? And and so if I if I introduce a pathogen into you, your body, right? Your body reacts. Living creatures react to protect themselves. So if someone is sensitive, sensitive to uh, a given issue, and Satoshi was sensitive to financial integrity, right? And obviously had some decent sensitivity and awareness of Austrian economics and, and the perils of inflation and the, and the and the um, moral hazard of bank bailouts. Mm -hmm. So that was a sensitive individual that tapped into a bunch of other sensitive nodes, individuals who shared that. And it's almost like uh, I, picked, I, I pricked you with a, a needle and I introduced this little pathogen and then you swelled out and there was some inflammation. And the inflammation you know, grew and festered and some antibodies built, and an organism built, and the organism got bigger, and it got bigger, and it got bigger, and then it got fed. If, if we had zero inflation of, if the US dollar monetary supply in, expanded by 0% for the past decade, how much passion would there be in the Bitcoin community compared to the amount of passion there is today? It'd be much less. Uh so, so it's a, we're, we're back to this issue, but it's a great technology. And um, yeah, it's inevitable. What, you know, we're back to this issue of, uh, of Zoom was inevitable. You know, uh, YouTube was inevitable. Virtual, uh, virtual business models were inevitable. Bitcoin was inevitable. But it sure did get accelerated by certain things that happened. Bitcoin had 10 years of, um, of I would say, a 7% forcing function with the dollar. And it got goosed a bit harder in, with Argentina and, and other developing world countries. And, you know, the anxiety of Syria and the anxiety of Iraq and the anxiety in Africa and the anxiety in South America and, and the like. So those stressors and the issues. That, that goosed it, and the currency wars pushed it a bit harder. And then I think the pandemic crisis lit it on fire. I could say, Robert, like, there's no way I'm talking to you if there's no pandemic. That's right. Like, yeah. like uh, so, but I, 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 don't, I don't think for a second that Bitcoin wouldn't be successful without me. And I don't think that is anybody going to stop it? But I do think there's an avalanche of, of uh, energy of individuals and corporations that got inspired and, and driven, you know, uh, into this ecosystem because of the pandemic. Back to, you know, again, back to war. Wars cause paradigm shifts. And this year, there's a currency war. And, and that's a war on money as a store of value, right? And, and that war on money as a store of value creates massive dislocations in the bond market and the equity market. And there are consequences to everything. 
And, uh, and ultimately, Bitcoin is a platform, an anti-fragile fragile but scalable platform serving as a store of value. And so the best possible circumstance would be if the entire world plunged into a war where value was dissipating in every currency everywhere at a rapid right. rate. And right. I think it describes what we have today. I think it's exactly correct. And it, it's almost as if the Mongols breached the Great Wall of China, right? The, the Mongols being um, central banks that are basically robbing value from currency. And it's it giving people more of an impetus to evaluate alternatives and to, for those that see it, to retreat behind the wall of encrypted energy, right? You have to defend your life force, your energy, your money um, from confiscation. And the most prevalent form of confiscation in the world today is inflation. And I guess that's what makes, it takes us to the next subject, which is Bitcoin is a store of value, right? Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is an incredible store of value. I think that's its primary use case, or it's, 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 it's killer, killer value proposition now and probably for the next decade and, and maybe forever, but, but the, the entire world is looking for a store of value right now. And you have to look across $250 trillion in assets. So if, if, if we think that asset inflation is running north of 10%, and I think it is, I think it's pretty, pretty clear it is. And if you have capital, you have to choose between bonds, you know, 80 trillion dollars in sovereign debt or corporate debt or municipal debt, or, you have, or, or mortgage-backed securities, or you gotta choose equities, tech equity, conventional equity, or you gotta go to precious metals, or you go to real property, real estate property. And when you look at all those things, the problem is half of all real estate is impaired because of the, because of the political response to COVID. Uh, and uh, it's not likely that's gonna change in the next 10 years. Uh, we probably got 10 years of, of uh, uncertainty about real estate assets, especially commercial real estate assets the other challenge is with real estate is the taxes on it. It's it's illiquid, immobile, and highly taxed. Generally, real estate is taxed annually everywhere, right? It's just a question of whether it's 20 basis points or 200 basis points. Right. So that, that makes real estate a challenging store of value, and that takes you to bonds. And bonds, bonds have worked as a store of value when interest rates keep going lower, you can see that everybody that's been on the bond train and benefiting from it, they're screaming as loud as they can. They want negative interest rates because they're like, I just, the, the secret to success is lower the interest rates 50 basis points a year or a hundred basis points a year. And it's a no lose proposition for them. But at this point it's getting kind of ridiculous, silly because when interest rates go negative, everybody, money, everybody takes their money out of the bank. It creates bank runs. All the bank systems break. It's, it's, right. uh, it's kind of a morally bankrupt. I mean, I mean, a lot of people, they don't really understand that, uh, that they're being abused at 2% instead of 5%. Yeah. But pretty much everybody can figure out that when you're being billed 1% of the money you have in a right. bank, you're being abused. Yeah. And again, if you look at money as that insurance policy on uncertainty, 
all of a sudden that policy has negative value. Like it does, it's, it's just asinine. It doesn't make any economic sense. Yeah. So that doesn't work. And so where does that take us? Uh, it takes us to equity. We got an equity bubble. It's a very crowded trade, but the real issue with equity as a store of value is that, is that uh, the revenues get taxed as sales tax. The cash flows get taxed as income tax. The expenses, uh, the, ca- the cost structure gets taxed as employee and payroll tax. Then, then the trade gets taxed as a tariff. Then you have the existential threat or regulatory risk of onerous regulations. You pick up the paper and see maybe Australia is going to bill Google every time they link to a newspaper article. Or, and then if Google doesn't link to newspaper articles, they're going to get fined for not linking to newspaper articles. And, you know, you, as these things become more powerful, they become regulated utilities and, and politicians start to think that they can and should be regulated. And, and you know, maybe with good cause, if, if there's only one provider of information anywhere in the country, then it, it definitely becomes a political issue. So that's a challenge with equities. Eventually, they might work for two, three, four years, but, but they're valued as a multiple of cash flows. So if all of the liquidity in the civilization gets squeezed out of debt, right, when interest gets to zero, the government, the government and the Fed owns all the debt. Okay, they bought me out. Now I got to put it in something else, so I jump on equity. So now equities double. But now the P to E's double or triple and the revenue multiples triple. If uh, what's the value of an equity? The value of equity should in theory be, you know, the tangible assets on the balance sheet plus the sum of the discounted cash flows. And so you, people are using equities as store of value today. Right? In fact, you could make the argument that equities are the most popular store of value for for the majority, you know, with the Robinhood trading, they're all buying Apple, Amazon, Facebook, NASDAQ, Spiders, everybody, even though, even though nobody thinks revenues are going up this year, nobody thinks earnings are going up this year, but equity values are double this year. Right. Yeah. So that means that they're getting riskier. So if you contrast Bitcoin to equity, the problem is if, if the price of an equity goes up by a factor of 10, you've got more risk because it's delaminating from its underlying cash flows and its fundamentals because it is a centralized regulated entity. And the only way that the cash flows are going to grow uh, into that value is they keep raising the price. And if they're monopoly and they raise the price, the regulators will react. If they don't raise the price, they can't grow into the multiple. (laughs) And, uh, And so you're kind of a chicken and the egg thing, right? If the price and if there's any competition and their cash flows deteriorate, eventually you're trading at 200, you know, to one or or 200 P to E. And uh, and then any degree of disappointment causes massive volatility. Right. Um, They don't. uh, How are they different than Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin's value proposition is the liquidity. It, it is the store of value. That is it. It's If you're going to function as money, you want to be a single-celled organism. The simple, like the algae of mm-hmm. the ecosystem. The base layer of the ecosystem is plankton mm-hmm. or, or bacteria or single cells. You don't want to be a vertebrate 
And, and these companies are vertebrates with a brain and a backbone. And that means, for example, WeChat or, or TikTok, it has a headquarters. And if it's in the wrong country, it gets its head chopped off. Right. You know? And uh, you know, Apple and Facebook, they're subject to a certain court, a certain country's jurisdiction. So that means they're foreigners somewhere else. They're vertebrates. If you're a vertebrate, I can kill you with a needle, right? Like a human being, I can figure out how to kill, right? I, there's a heart, I take a needle, I poke there, you're gone. You're very fragile. Hard to do that with a swarm of hornets. Hard to do that with all the plankton in the ocean. Hard to, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do it with, a, with a, a, an amorphous decentralized invertebrate of some sort. So if you want to store a value, you don't want a company that's valued based upon the ability to, to engineer hyper complicated products that have to keep getting upgraded. You want something which is simple that can just keep being simple. What, th this no. is again where some of the crypto enthusiasts, they keep wanting to tinker with a, you know, a better blockchain, a better crypto, a better, they, you know, they never saw an upgrade they didn't like. So they just want to keep revving it every year. This is like, it's the iPhone version 37. Right. There's a fundamental difference, which is if there's a bug in iPhone version 37, everybody in the world's heart doesn't stop. Right. I think this, this analogy you're using with, with the simplicity of plankton, right, being the base layer for the ecosystem is apt. Because, and I, um, I want to say plankton makes up the majority of the biomass on the planet by like a pretty substantial margin because it's so simple and it's so efficient at converting solar energy into bio, biological energy, right? And then it feed, it is the base layer for this multiplicity of layered ecosystem that we have in the world. And another thing I think is interesting is you make a, a great point that equities are becoming more risky as they increase in price because they're, they're delaminating from their valuation fundamentals, as you said. And Bitcoin's the opposite, right? Actually, the more valuable Bitcoin is, the more secure its network, the greater the liquidity, um, the more resistant it is to attack. So it's, it's a very interesting counter trade to, to equities as a store of value. And of course, if you have an individual entity with an individual headquarters and a, and a CEO, as it gets bigger, it becomes a bigger target. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe everybody in your home country loves you, but what about everybody in every other country? Right. Does you know? So you don't want a head, and you don't want to be a target, and you don't want to be value based on cash flows if you're going to be money. Like, but it's they're the right, but they're the right creature to be uh, building a device or maybe creating an exchange or creating an application. Because there, I want, um, I want the software to run a billion times faster. And so it's okay to have one company write software. But the question is, I want it to run a billion times faster, but do I need it to last for a thousand years? And the answer is, I can throw my phone away and Western civilization will not end if I lose my phone or if you screw up my phone, right? It will not end. If I put all the energy in Western civilization, or that's prejudicial, if I put all the energy into civilization or of civilization into a network, a crypto network, I can't afford for someone to like ship a buggy release. <laughs> so, so, and again, what people forget is 
if I put a billion dollars into Bitcoin on January 1st, 2021, and I don't touch it for a hundred years, the thing is working. It's, you know, a truly insanely great technology is, um, is uh, okay, we're back to Nicholas Taleb is haunting our thoughts. Via <laughs> negativa, right? Ah, yes. Add by taking away. Right. Insanely great technology is when it does a thing without you doing a thing. Right. But, you know, a junior technologist, they create gadgets. I have um, an app. I have a mobile application. It has 150 features and 150 buttons. And if you click and there's a billion different things it can do, depending upon the combination of the buttons and the features you click on. Okay, that's one thing. How about another mobile app? You download the mobile app and everywhere you walk on Earth, it kills all your enemies and... and gives you infinite food and water and protection and plays whatever music you wanted to hear around you without you touching it, hands-free, right? You know, if I walk around and someone walks behind me and they do everything I want, you know, before I ask them to do it without me opening my mouth, isn't that a heck of a lot better than a gadgety thing with features? Yeah, it's higher utility, right? Yeah. It's saying exuberant. It, the design's not done. It's not a perfect design until there's nothing left to remove. And so if right. I told you, take all your money, put it into Bitcoin, and then you'll be rich and happy and prosperous for all of eternity without doing a single transaction. That's a lot better idea. Right. That's a great point. I, don't I think more features and more gadgety things i just need it to always work right 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 and, and just and to work is is vapor around me you're right absolutely i just to give the listeners uh a little bit of context on via negativa for those who haven't uh read Taleb, his canonical examples in his book the black swan where you can see as many white swans as you want but you can never prove by virtue of that evidence that all swans are white. But with a single sighting of a black swan, you have disproven that all swans are white. So the, the moral of the, the story is that disconfirmation is more rigorous than confirmation, right? And I think that's getting to your point here is that it, it, it's getting stronger by taking away, right? Your, your, your factual base on which you're building your premise and strategy in the world is strengthened by, by disconfirmation more so than it is confirmation. All right, and I'll give you another example that we see all the time uh, with Google. You go into Google, uh, you, you ask the wrong question and misspell it, and it gives you the right answer. That's... <laughs> That's a truly great piece of software. You ask the wrong question and it gives you the right answer because it knows what question you should have asked. It knows how you should have spelled it. And it said, we're going to answer this question for you instead because the odds that you really wanted to know, you know, uh, this question answered is 99 million to one. The odds that you really were asking a unique 
question that seems foolish and misspelling a popular name while you're asking, that's one in a billion. So if you really wanted to ask the wrong question the wrong way, you try twice. But 99.999% of the time, they give you the right answer to the wrong question. And, uh, and they do it because they build like this uh, very fault tolerant, common sense, rational interface. And uh, so that, back to the store of value, right? Bitcoin is, it's an ideal store of value because it's got, it's got the ability to convey your energy, not, not across 10,000 miles, but across 10,000 days. 30 years in the future, 100 years in the future. Most people, when they're investing in assets, they're taking this very short-term view of like the next month, the next year, the next two years. And I find that if, if you're looking in a three-year time frame, everything gets very, very noisy and complicated and there's all these debates. But if you really want to end the debates, go at 100 years. And just take $100 million and uh, go through the exercise of giving it to someone, your, your heirs, heirs, heir in 100 years. And then all of a sudden, all of the, all this noise drops away. Can I put it in real estate? No, it'll be taxed out of existence in 100 years. Can I put it in gold? No, 98% of it will be gone if 100% of it isn't gone in 100 years because it'll be mined to death. Can I put it in fiat? No, it's going to be inflated to death. Can I, can I invest it in a company? No, name one company that's around today that was around 100 years ago that hasn't been diluted, recapitalized, et cetera. Can I put it in a, in a stock index? Well, you're trusting a human being to rebalance the index you know, over and over again. What stock index do you trust for the next 100 years? And by the way, it's, it's got counterparty risk at the nation state level. Nation might not be there. And 90% uh, didn't make it. So what are you left with? And, and the truth is when you, when you just do that thought experiment, it's pretty obvious. You put it in, uh, you would put it in a crypto network and a decentralized proof of work network if the adherents, the maximalist were fanatic zealots about protecting the integrity of the network against meddlers who would screw it up. If, if the network is supported by those with a religious conviction to the network, such that you could imagine 100 years from now, there will still be people protecting the network. Boy, the phrase is keepers of the flame, right? Every great religion, every great institution has keepers of the flame, and there must be passion. Do you believe in your religion? Do you, do you believe strong enough that you'll flee persecution to, to continue to practice it, right? The, the United States was built on the foundation, the separation of, of church and state, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a pretty important and interesting metaphor. People came here because they could practice their religion. That's why they came here. And they came here because their religion was uh, above their government. Mm -hmm. you know, they, were not, they would not sacrifice whatever it is they believed in. 
If you look at every institution that lasts more than 100 years, name them. Harvard University, Cambridge, Oxford, the Catholic Church, Islamic sects, certain, the Jewish faith. Oh, wait, there's not that many. It's like there's churches or religious sects, and then there's some educational institutions. And I, and I see the educational institutions being shaken at their core this year. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, literally, you could have said for 500 years, you know, Ivy Leagues, elite universities, they are stalwart institutions. They have lost a huge amount of credibility this year. When you send all your all of your students home and you close the campus and people are studying virtually, people's affiliation to the to the bricks and mortar of the institution has been dramatically weakened. And unless they morph into a virtual institution, the virtual institutions, by the way, have dramatically strengthened, right? Like your affiliation with YouTube and Facebook and Apple TV and Bitcoin has dramatically strengthened and, and square cash if it's virtual and your affiliation with the bricks and mortar physical uh, institution has been weakened and those that will survive have dematerialized and virtualized, right? And, they, and they, they've, learned, uh, they've learned how to project their ethos in cyberspace. So yeah, back to the store of value, you need people human beings, flesh and blood people that are going to, uh, that are going to keep the flame. And the flame of Bitcoin is the node and the mining rig. It's like, mm-hmm. imagine um, we're getting into Bitcoin as religion or as faith now, but imagine uh, a thousand years ago, I want to keep a religion alive. I have an altar in my home. I have a cha- Every wealthy person had a chapel in their home. If you look at religions, right, go to the Far East, uh, there are altars in Buddhist, Shinto, other faiths. So the idea of an altar or a shrine or um, a cathedral or a church, these are structures where people go to worship, and the worshiping is the feeding of the flame. And oftentimes during the worshiping, they're tithing and they're channeling 10% of their money as energy into these religions in order to keep them relevant. If you look at science, if you look at fantasy fiction and fantasy where they have gods, the, the, the strength of the God is a function of the devoutness of the worshipers, of the followers. Such and such was worshiped as the God of the God of the forest. And they are worshiped as the God of the forest and all of their adherents, all their acolytes, are feeding energy to the god of the forest. And when they're no longer worshipped, their energy goes away. Right? If you uh, if you lose your faithful, if they won't feed you with the fire of truth, with the energy that you need, your efficacy falls and you die. And so, how do you feed? A fire, right? If, if it's a physical fire, you have to throw wood on the fire. How do you feed a religion? You have to tithe. You have to, you know, the Catholic Church, uh, any church, you have to give it money, and maybe you have to give it your life service. Onward, Christian soldiers. I will fight for the cause. I will donate to the cause. That's how you feed 
uh, a religious institution. How do you feed a crypto network? You got to spin up facilities of encrypted energy that adhere to the protocol. Every time a miner comes on board, it's feeding the fire. Every time a node comes on board that's going to, that's going to certify and validate, it's, it's uh, protecting, right? It's creating one more chain in the, in the fault tolerant structure. And um, that's why, that's why a smaller crypto, a, a crypto that's a technical experiment, that's an application, isn't a good store of value. Because if the people are willing to fork it, if they want to fork it and abandon it in order to in order to implement a new technology, <clears throat> then um, then the flame dies, and and so it's pretty clear that uh, that Bitcoin maximalists they have a lot of the faith and the conviction of true believers in any religious faith for the past two thousand years, and why wouldn't they? Because um, they share the same values. Their values are truth, nature, natural laws, laws of physics, laws of thermodynamics, math, Austrian economics, no such thing as a free lunch, self-reliance, you know, honesty, fairness, and technology in advance. They share those values. <clears throat> they, um, they're taking their monetary energy and tokenizing it on a, on a Bitcoin network with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is that single shared store of value. If, if money is energy and energy begets life and, and a, a crypto decentralized network gives you sovereignty, that's a path to immortality. And that means that everybody in the uh, in the Bitcoin community that, that believes in this for the long term is engaged in the pursuit of a mortal life. And pursuit of a mortal life sounds like a religious mantra, I think. And uh, and I grew up in the Southern Baptist faith, so I'm I'm very familiar with uh, with the ideology of Christianity and pursuit of a mortal life is pretty paramount there. I did as well. That's interesting. <laughs> and 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 um, if if Bitcoin is a store of value for a hundred years, then it is a it is a um, a technique, or it is a yeah it is a technique through which you can uh, project your values through time. So if you're not if you're not actually providing for a better life for yourself you're providing for a better life for your family, or you're providing uh, for a better life for your loved ones or friends, or perhaps your values are you want to support a dog park and you want to endow the dog park for a hundred years. Or right. what if you want to endow a, you know, a environmental cost or save the seals or save the whales, or, or it doesn't really matter what the cause is, cure cancer, do this, go to the stars. When I die, I want all of my wealth to be used to make education free for everyone forever. 
that actually is one of my values. And, and I have a foundation, the Sailor Foundation, which, is, which gives away free education to hundreds of thousands of people. That's a value. Other people want to go to outer space. If I can channel my energy and put it into a, a, a network, and that network can be used to fund and power an endowment that will do that thing, then um, that, that Bitcoin network or that crypto network is going to be my mechanism for achieving all of my hopes and aspirations from now to eternity. That's an amazing point. And I would even conceive of that as a mechanism almost of the afterlife, right? It's a way to carry your will beyond your own life. And the other, the American mythologist, Joseph Campbell, he described religion um, as a story that points toward the transcendental mystery that we all experience, but cannot articulate. And it's, it's so all religious traditions, mythological traditions are stories pointing toward a higher truth. And I find it interesting that Bitcoin has higher truth uh, embedded in code, right? This 21 million number is quite literally transcendental. We can't touch it. We can't change it. We can't do anything about it. It's every 10 minutes, it's promulgating the most indisputable truth that we've ever had, right? It's glo true global consensus. So it's, it's, it's not just a metaphor, I think, to call Bitcoin religious. It quite actually is religious. If you, if you worship science, if you worship the laws of physics and the laws of thermodynamics and, and, and mathematical clarity, then Bitcoin's your religion. Right, right. <laughs> and that, that's what takes us out of the range of, of simple asset debates. If your time horizon is 10 years, we can debate Bitcoin this versus Apple stock that versus Amazon versus bonds versus whatever. And when, you, when your time horizon is three years, by the way, it all is just in the domain of, of macro traders and, and, and cute arbitrageurs. And everybody wants to tell you about the Fibonacci, this triangle thing, and, and that's overbought and this is oversold. And you know, my head kind of explodes trying to figure that out. But the truth, I just don't care. It doesn't, right. it, you know, being right in the next two years strikes me as being a bad idea because in order to be right as a trader in the near term, I have to turn off the part of my brain that thinks about what's true and honest and mm. morally hazard, you know, or rational. Right. Yeah. Right? You literally have to be like, I know it's stupid to go this way, but since everybody else is going to go this way, I'm going to do something stupid now because I think I'm less stupid, but more, more stupid, <sighs> stupid than they are stupid. It's just, it's not a way to live. The market so, can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, right? Yeah, and and the problem is like if I lose by trying to act stupid, then I really was stupid. And if I win acting kind of irrational, crazy, then I don't respect myself. And meanwhile, you know, a much simpler idea is just figure out what's going to go up by a factor of a hundred or a thousand and just go stand there and wait for entropy to take its course and wait for gravity to take its its effect 
right? And let the water flow downhill and let the fire burn, right? And don't dash around while the fire is burning everything. Stand up and watch it. So, so the solution there is you move from three years to 10 years, and then you move from 10 years to 100 years. And at the 100 year time frame, it's pretty clear what's an asset and what's a store of value. And that's where it's just, it's just very obvious. A, Bitcoin is a store of value if its believers have religious conviction in it, right? It becomes very simple. Now, if you, if you step out to a thousand year time frame and you say, what's this thing gotta be in order to last a thousand years? It better be the worship of math and the laws of thermodynamics and the laws of physics and, and Einstein and Newton. That might make it. And, and if, if we just focus upon that and don't, and don't let all this other stuff get mired, I mean, that's reasonable. I mean, people, people have been studying and honoring math and algebra for 2,000 years. They've been honoring calculus for 400 years, right? You could say this is truly the, um, uh, the adoption of economics as a science. Right, I mean, it, it's that, it's that uh, critical inflection point where economics went from being a, a political preference to being a science. And if you adopt it as a science, then you, get, then you actually get massive advantages technically. And if you reject it, I don't know, it's, I guess it's kind of like the guys in the dark ages and they could accept calculus or they could reject calculus. Right. No bridges. Yeah. If you reject calculus, make a bridge, see what happens, have at yeah. it. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of stuff in life. If, if you look back at the guy that did more than anything, probably Isaac Newton is responsible for 90% of just about everything we have around us. Yeah. And if you rejected Principia Mathematica because you just thought it was inconvenient, you probably rejected 90% of everything that we have today that we hold near and dear. And natural selection takes care of the rest, right? If you reject these truths that are uncovered, you're, it's the end of your legacy in the long run. All right, guys, that was episode seven with Michael Saylor here in the Saylor series. And wow, what an episode. Um, we have gone really deep into the topic of Bitcoin, uh, and I think we, we had a really strong finish today. So I'm just going to run through a few of the things we talked about. You know, we started out with this concept of Bitcoin as a monetary missile. And this took me back to episode one, where we're talking about fire, missiles, and hydraulics being these, these primary Stone Age technologies that allowed mankind to, to come into dominance in the world. And I thought the analogy is very interesting that, you know, using Bitcoin, we have this sort of ultimate high ground behind a wall of encrypted energy, but we can also accelerate our monetary energy and deploy it anywhere in the world, you know, across any domain um, near, with nearly instantly uh, with virtually no frictions at all. And so not only does it give us this advantage of asymmetric terrain, but we also get maximal force with how we deploy that monetary energy in the, the generation 
of capital. Um, so I thought that was that was super apt analogy. And then we talked about how that effectively makes Bitcoin the highest bandwidth, price discovery, transparency, and security asset in the world, right? So we have this pure money that propagates pure price signals, so it would allow for pure price discovery. Um, all of that is premised on uh, its open source ethos, which is essentially absolute transparency. And that gives it the ultimate security. So there's a bit of a paradox there. It's like, by being totally open to inspection, Bitcoin actually resists, uh, you know, manipulation or emulation even, and that it's, um, everything about it is out in the open. So it's, it's more a quality of its network effects, its liquidity, its first mover advantage, um, all of these things, even actually the disappearance of Satoshi, which we'll get into a bit later, all of these things sort of wrap this open technology in a, you know, apparently disruption-proof casing. Um, so I thought that was just really, really powerful discussion points. And as Sailor calls Bitcoin the creature that never sleeps, right? We have this swarm intelligence, if you will, that never stops growing, changing, adapting, um, trading, you know, it just, it is a fully autonomous uh, and perpetual monetary network competing against these other monetary networks that are rigidly controlled in certain time windows. Um, and, you know, to this point, it's like an individual organism has to sleep, but a swarm creature does not. So the swarm creature necessarily outcompetes the individual organism because it doesn't need to sleep, right? It just keeps adapting and growing, uh, becoming more fit. And, you know, as we know from Darwin, it's the most fit competitor uh, that wins out in an ecosystem. And I thought this was a great point too. I never thought of it this way that in a swarm, the weakest elements are actually weeded out, right? They, so it's constantly sacrificing its weaker elements to natural selection um, and thereby strengthening the ensemble, whereas the individual organism is subject to any singular attack vector. If, it, if its defense is penetrated, it, the whole entity or organism essentially is lost. So in that way, centralized entities are only as strong as their weakest link, or as Saylor says, are constrained by their lowest common denominator, whereas a decentralized entity, like the swarm, is going to be strengthened by its highest common denominator, right? Um, so, and we can think about this, it's kind of like something that learns at the edges. So, if one member of the swarm figures out how to effectively deal with a predator or threat, then it will tend to um, reproduce and its genes will be replicated into the rest of the swarm. So the, the entire decentralized entity or organism is actually learning at the edges and incorporating those lessons into its, its whole body. Whereas the centralized entity, if it encounters a predator that it doesn't know how to deal with or um, even figures out how to defeat, it doesn't, it doesn't spread that uh, adaptivity to the rest of its body, essentially. It's just, it's a one-to-one -one relationship versus this one-to-many. Um, so the one-to-many gives it just much more intelligence and adaptivity in the long run. And to tie this back to Bitcoin, it's as if, if to say this point, if any market participant in the Bitcoin network figures out a way to deliver a solution, you know, smarter, faster, 
stronger, better, um, that that will essentially, that's where the capital will flow again, because the capital is unrestricted, right? It's just not, um, it is not siloed to any particular um, jurisdiction or institution. Individuals have maximal sovereignty over their Bitcoin capital so they can move it anywhere in the world. So in his example of, say, someone setting up a decentralized or centralized institution in Singapore, for instance, that solved the yield curve problem. So matching lenders and borrowers of Bitcoin in a way that establishes uh, a long-term yield curve for Bitcoin, that this would, you know, that would create all of a sudden this risk-free rate on Bitcoin, which is the one thing that it lacks, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, to make it a truly pristine collateral that would be competitive to, say, U.S. Treasuries, is that Bitcoin just doesn't currently have a yield. Um, but if you could match borrowers and lenders, you could actually create that curve. So the point was, say this, uh, we create this 8% risk-free rate on Bitcoin on 10-year money, then all of a sudden, not only have you strengthened the, um, which could be used, by the way, this if you had this risk-free rate on Bitcoin and you have fiat, deprecating at say 2% a year, best case. And this opens up an attack vector on fiat where you could actually um, go long Bitcoin, short the dollar and squeeze uh, the difference in yield. This is called speculative attack. And this ha would have the effect of strengthening the speculative attacker himself, but it would also strengthen the holder in uh, you know, Schenectady or whatever town that doesn't know anything about this just by virtue of uh, more price appreciation pressure being applied to Bitcoin. So more energy being drawn into the network actually benefits all network participants. And this is contrary to a centralized uh, entity. And if you, if you flip this back to the Great Wall of China example, it's like you've inverted that security model. So whereas the Great Wall of China is just a perimeter defense, it doesn't adapt if you can penetrate any point of it, the whole uh, defensible area is lost, right? That's actually what happened when the Mongols penetrated the gate. Uh, whereas Bitcoin is effectively this swarm intelligence, right? So it's, it's any network participant that can figure something out uh, is benefiting the entire network. And then you've also uh, further capitalized or further energized those network participants to go out and solve other problems on behalf of other network participants. So there's this virtuous cycle built right into it that's just not, does not exist with any other form of money. And then we take a bit of a pivot and we got into how human intervention negatively and adversely impacts complex systems. And Sailor gave the example of, you know, the lions complaining that the antelope are too fast, so the hunter hobbles the antelope the lions, you know, kill all the antelope, get lazy because they're not being pushed to their limits. So then after all the antelope are eliminated, the lions starve to death and then the hunter blames it on the weather. All right. Uh, this is a core concept in Telebian in Taleb's books where he says that human intervention moves us from what he calls mediocristan to extremistan, um, meaning essentially that the uh, non-linearity of effects goes through the roof once we try to intervene in natural systems because there's there are all these dynamic equilibria that we're unaware of and when we offset uh, you know we try to press 
one lever to cause one result, there's a cascade of unintended consequences surrounding that. Um, one common example here is, is called the cobra problem. Cobra problem. And you can uh, look this up on, say, Wikipedia. But the gist of it is that, uh, I forget what country, but they, they had a problem with overpopulation of cobras. So they passed a law that said uh, it offered a ransom for every dead cobra brought to the government. You know, they give you $10 or whatever it was. And this had the unintended consequence of incentivizing people to actually start breeding cobras and killing them. Uh, and then to take them into the government and, and get this reward. So it actually further exacerbated the overpopulation problem and uh, financially compromised the local government. So that's just one example where, you know, good intentions go awry and history is just full of these. Um, and to tie that back into money, you know, that's what I guess you could say the central bank or interest rate manipulation, you know, Intentionality aside, we could possibly argue that it was done uh, in and with the attempt to make things better, right? Um, you could you could argue both sides of that. Let's just say, for instance, that um, it was done with good and wholesome intentions to benefit the economy or stimulate demand, you know, or uh, keep prices stable and employment low and predictable and all these things. Uh, that still. When you're talking about suppressing interest rates to induce money creation and borrowing, you're going to war with the temporal and energetic principles of thermodynamics. Because, again, money is like the price of money, the interest rate is the price of time, right? I'm going to give you money now that you're going to give me back later. There's a price associated with that that you're going to pay me. It's called the interest rate. If a centralized body is artificially suppressing that, you're actually trying to, you know, in sailors, the way sailors is to reverse the flow of time. You're discounting the price of time. And this has just so many disastrous unintended consequences around it, um, which we went into, you know, but you're, you're, you're pushing back against thermodynamics, which are, which is the inviolable rule set of the universe. And I would argue that actually, trying to suppress the price of time causes us to discount uh, the value of our own time and the time of others, actually. And, and you can say time or energy, again. Um, and it, I, I think that is kind of the culprit at the heart of the moral hazard related to fiat currency, is that we're discounting time and energy, uh, which is the intrinsic value of human beings, effectively. Um, and that's the one case, by the way, where I use the term intrinsic value, because I do think humans are the only intrinsically value. Uh, you can maybe expand that to life more generally, but um, there's no objects that have intrinsic value. Value is subjective. But life itself, as living beings, that seems to be kind of an absolute, is that we should, we should have uh, value for life. Um, anyways, a bit of a philosophical side. And... In that way, we, if we're looking at this organism aspect, uh, you know, actually discounting the price of life, um, and we see all the moral hazard that central banking has created and all the warfare it's funded, it's as if Bitcoin is an autoimmune response somehow from society uh, to central banking, right? And, uh, you know, as Sailor said, clearly, the message in the Genesis block 
solidifies that. Um, and he goes a little bit deeper, actually, to say that Satoshi was clearly an individual sensitive to these um, negative socioeconomic consequences of central banking. And his own sensitivity was a response to the sensitivity of others, right? People that had been marginalized or victimized by the system throughout the ages. And um, it's ad that you could call that like an in form of inflammation, basically, of the socioeconomic superorganism. And then Satoshi was uh, just the, you know, the cell of the organism that figured it out, right? He figured out the correct response, launched it into the world in the right way at the right time. Um, so I thought that was just really interesting that, you know, there's, and, and Brandon Quidham, uh, I talked to him about the fourth turning. He made the point, I haven't actually read this book yet, but he made the point that in these uh, long, these long cycles, there's, you know, first, second, third, fourth turning, there tends to come a kind of pivotal moment or innovation or something that comes just at the right time to sort of reverse course. Uh, and it feels and seems like Bitcoin is definitely becoming that of the modern age. Um, the world is just going one direction on central banking and we needed uh, some autoimmune response and it appears Bitcoin is that. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then we, we got into Bitcoin as a store of value and I think made very strong arguments, um, again, especially when you zoom out to kind of a hundred year plus time frame, that Bitcoin is basically the sole 21st century store of value, right? It just is incomparable to anything else. Um, and this, you know, 2020 war on currency and uh, escalating government overreach, this has just pushed an awareness of Bitcoin on people. Um, and sort of accelerated that autoimmune response in a way. And to just kind of like compare it, you know, real quick as we went through alternative stores of value, you have bonds, but they're now bumping up against the zero bound. Uh, and, you know, to, to say this point, like it's harder to discern you're being taken advantage of when the natural interest rate is 2%, you're getting, or 5%, you're getting 2%. But it's much easier for market participants to understand they're getting screwed when uh, there's a negative yield, right? It just... It's, it, there's there's something very special about crossing that zero barrier, and that's where bonds are at today. So that they're getting uh, quickly decimated as a, a viable store of value because there's no yield. Uh, equities they're way overvalued, right? And across all fundamentals um, and valuation metrics, where you know historic all-time highs, PE ratios, and, and uh, EBITDA to enterprise, enterprise value, or sorry, multiples on EBITDA or enterprise value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that is, you know, what, what I would argue as a Bitcoiner is a function of, we've compromised the store value function of fiat currency. So that function is now, the market's figuring out it needs to put, assign that function to any other asset, right? And equities are somewhat reliably scarce at least. Um, but this has a perverse effect. And that since, as Sailor says, the price of equities are delaminating from their fundamentals, right? So they're overvalued uh, in the marketplace, that they're actually becoming more and more risky, right? So there's this perverse effect of the more we use an equity as a store of value, the more, the less effective it is as a store of value in the long run, which is, which is really strange. And Bitcoin is the opposite of that, right? Bitcoin is actually becoming more secure as a store of value as its price increases and therefore more attractive uh, 
Um, and this is an economic concept called the Veblen good, uh, which you could look up. But basically, there are certain assets that actually become uh, the demand tends to increase as the price increases, which is contrary to most other assets, but I think Bitcoin fits that category. Uh, commodities are another alternative. You know, we destroyed those in earlier episodes. I'd say go check that out. Um, check those out. Uh, and then finally, real estate, which has been a really popular one for the past 50 years, especially in the U.S., but, you know, real estate cannot be hidden, and it's taxed every year. It's the easiest thing in the world to tax because you can't hide it, and, you know, that is the dominion over which governments project their power. Um, so I think that there's really high valuations there, plus uh, there's no concealability. concealability. So that, that um, sort of compromises real estate as a good store of value. And, you know, he makes the point that to be a good store of value, you really want to have a technology that's focused on that function. Right, equities are you know you're creating all kinds of other value in the economy. Granted, albeit riskily, right? You have to they're taking on risk and trying new ventures and figuring things out, and innovating. Um, you know, property would be a little more stable, but it still has other uses, right? There's actually a utility use there. So the point being, you want a pure store of value, right? That's what gold effectively was was the purest store of value we had historically, and now that's what Bitcoin is today. Um, and we could say it's it's kind of like being a single-celled organism, right? As Sailor said, you don't want to be a vertebrate with all these complex features because the additional features open you up to more risk and attack surface. Or what you want is something uh, very unidimensional, single-cell, just holds value in a trust-minimized way across time and space. Uh, and that's what Bitcoin is, right? That is the big breakthrough. So, and that led us into via negativa, which is another Tolibian concept that I really like. And in a way, you know, this is ties back to a quote. Uh, actually, I heard Sailor tweeted once. He said, quote, a designer knows he has achieved perfection when there is nothing left to take away, unquote. And as we discussed previously, money has five properties, right? Divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. So what did Satoshi do for the creation of Bitcoin? The reason it's so genius and the reason Satoshi is an artist and the reason Bitcoin is effectively a perfected money is because Satoshi took away all of the indivisibility, all of the decomposability, all of the unrecognizability, all of the immovability, and all of the unpredictability from money. Right? He maximally removed all of these negative aspects of money to deliver us the you know quasi perfection that is Bitcoin, um, and that speaks again to this minimization of attack surface, right? You've reduced all of the kind of the features of money, just stripped it down to its bare bones, just its bare monetary properties, and you've taken away all the the negative aspects from those properties. So you've effectively perfected those properties. Um, and this speaks again to Bitcoin's resistance to disruption, right? So we've, we've achieved attack surface minimization via monetary property optimization. So this is, this is via negativa, right? You're, the more you take away, the more, what, what you have left, it becomes more valuable, essentially. Um, so I thought that was just a really interesting way to look at it. And another way to say that is, you know, 
we commonly hear that, oh, this new crypto asset can do this or that that Bitcoin can't do. But the, the lesser feature set of Bitcoin is a feature itself, not a bug, right? Because it's, its whole value prop is survivability, right? It cannot be stopped. It is just perfected store value that adheres to 21 million and no one can shut down the network, right? No political or military action can shut down the network. That is the core value prop of Bitcoin. That is what it optimizes for. Um, and as Saylor puts this, again, in one of his tweets, he says, Bitcoin has no country, has no company, and has no competitor, right? So that's what makes it so special, is that it's something that actually exists beyond us, and that, which turns out to be really important. Um, and I would add to that, too, that Bitcoin also doesn't have an, oh, we'll say this, Bitcoin has no identified creator, right? We know it's Satoshi, but no one knows who Satoshi is. It's, we don't have this person to point toward. And the absence of that personality, the creator, actually, I would say, gives Bitcoin mythological bedrock, right? Which really underpins its decentralization. If we knew Satoshi and he was in the news every day and he was out getting drunk at the bar or something, you know, and everyone knew he had a million coin, it would just open him up to a lot of attacks and call a lot of things into question um, that his disappearance basically nullified. So the, you know, this godhead of Bitcoin we call Satoshi, I think really um, reinforces the, the value proposition of survivability and decentralization. And that gets us into what I thought was the most interesting part of the discussion today. And that was when Saylor pointed to the fanaticism of Bitcoin maximalists as an asset, right? As a, as a uh, contributing factor to the value of the Bitcoin network. And, you know, I love this, the, the analogy where the defenders of 21 million effectively, the network participants themselves, we are the keepers of the flame, right? We are the, the mythological keepers of the flame. And the point being there, it, to preserve an institution adequately over time, you need uh, adherents or fanatics, if you will, that are so convicted in their belief that they're willing to flee persecution to preserve the institution, right? And he drew the analogy to people coming to the US. People came to the US largely to practice religious freedom, right? People wanted uh, a refuge that they could freely um, put their, their spiritual preferences above their, their political, above politics, effectively. Um, and the U.S. provided that. So I thought that was super interesting. Um, and then to, to bring it forward a bit, it's we're seeing the faith shaken in existing institutions worldwide, right? Whether it's your government, your bank, uh, all these legacy institutions, uh, faith has been severely shaken, especially in the wake of COVID. Um, which Salem made a great point. It's even like at the universities where no one's going to campus anymore and they're taking courses online, you're reducing the affiliation with the brick and mortar university and you're strengthening the affiliation with the digital university, right? So the, the institutions and companies and brands that adapt to the digital age more quickly will actually benefit uh, more at the expense of legacy institutions. And um, 
so that's a mega political trend, <coughs> excuse me, that's underway. Excuse me. And the flame for Bitcoin, if you will, is kept between the nodes, the miners, and the holders. And I love this, you know, which are basically preserving this dynamic equilibrium centered on 21 million. And I love this, the analogy of worshiping at the altar, where people in the past all worshiped at the altar. Um, they would actually feed the flame even by, by tithing, say, 10% of their, their income. Um, so they're, they're funding this religious institution. And they're also uh, preaching these values to their contemporaries or their kids. So they're, they're passing these values forward in time using both money and language, which I thought was, was very interesting. And ritual, I would add to that. Um, and so in Bitcoin world, we've got miners energizing the fire, right? They're uh, adding additional energy to the network that, uh, that is its security budget effectively. You have nodes protecting the fire, which are basically selecting the rule set that the miners are enforcing. And then we have the holders themselves which are the fire, They're the, 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 the living flame um, that's centered around 21 million. So it's like this group of people, uh, this social layer that's all oriented to, to preserving 21 million, which benefits everyone and intertwines everyone's fate. So, and each one of those is just another element in this, you know, this composite fault tolerance structure that we call Bitcoin. So it's just radically new way to think about it as more of a, a religious-like institution, and maybe you could even say that, um, you know, nodes, miners, and holders are kind of like the holy trinity of Bitcoin, right? Maybe maybe 21 million is is the the god or something that they're oriented around. It might be a stretch, but I thought um, thought I'd mention it nonetheless. So, Bitcoin as a religion, the question becomes naturally, what are its values, right? And a sailor. Sailor declares truth, natural law, thermodynamics, self-reliance, honesty, fairness, technology, self-sovereignty. All of these things are embedded in the value systems of true Bitcoiners. Um, and they carry that into the world, I think, in, in, their, in their word, in their deed, in their investments. Um, and, it, you know, I just can't think of a more robust powerful, effective, well-organized group of people in the world than, than the Bitcoiners I've interacted with. You know, I've said it before, there's nothing in the world that makes me more bullish on Bitcoin than Bitcoiners. Um, and, you know, again, if we, if we go back to the purpose of man, or at least what distinguishes him and makes him uh, superior to other animals, it's our ability to channel energy across space and time. And I love this point. So, you know, so energy, right, begets life. So Bitcoin is being this, this tool for immortalizing the channeling of energy, right? We can channel it across space and time in any direction we want with essentially no loss. That 21 million or, or Bitcoin itself, it's actually in a way kind of the pursuit of immortal life, right? We're pursuing uh, a medium that maximally preserves energy across space and time. So it's like, well, of course it's a religious institution. We're pursuing a mortal life. Uh, not a mortal life in the sense like you live forever, but um, a 
network or institution that lives forever for the betterment of all. Um, and one in which you can project your own wills and values beyond your own life. Um, and, you know, I, the example there was like the Sailor Foundation, which is he, his value and Sailor's own personal value system is free education for all, right? He thinks that is something that's really important for the human race. And now with Bitcoin, he has a way to finance and project those values beyond his own life, right? He can now do something uh, to to uh, fund and strengthen this institution beyond his own life in a way that was not possible before Bitcoin. And you could kind of say that this is a way of him, uh, you know, projecting values and willpower and intentions and preferences into his own afterlife, if you will. Doesn't mean up into heaven, but just beyond his own life. So I thought that was really interesting. And then we touched on, you know, again, Another way, another religious aspect aspect of this is that 21 million is truly transcendent, right? It is something no one can do anything about. Um, and I think that speaks to its, its religious qualities in a way as well. Um, and, you know, it had this great quote, it said, if you worship science, the laws of physics, thermodynamics, and mathematical clarity, then Bitcoin is your religion. I thought that was beautifully said. Um, and... It's, it points back to us again, right? It's like the, the strength of Bitcoin as a store of value, as money, is rooted in the faithfulness of its adherents, right? Of its believers, if you will. So um, it is up to all of us to preserve the principles embodied in those fields of study. Um, and, and that's what Bitcoin is. So, and then, you know, we concluded with which I thought was a great point, is perhaps economics through all of history was just more of a political preference or a very, uh, much more just a social science, right? Even in Austrian economics, there's very little use of objective measurements because there are no constants in human action, effectively. But it seems like with Bitcoin, we do have this collision. We have this collision of you know, call it computer science and everything underpinning that with uh, the softer social science of economics. So maybe this is the emergence of something really different and unique, right? Like a true, or not a true, a more objective economic science. You know, we're still, these things like value, uh, supply and demand, you know, supply is the objective side, demand is the subjective side. These things are still going to be, they're so, still going to hold the same qualities, but the introduction of absolute scarcity um, and a money that cannot be monopolized and resist corruption certainly changes the game, right? Uh, I don't know that it will call it, cause us to rewrite the history books per se, but we will move more towards this engineering-like mindset, I think, in the, in the field of economics. So I thought that was really, really great way to put it. Excuse me. Uh, so yeah, that was it, man. It was monster episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I, you know, one, two, and three built a lot of foundation. I think four, five, and six really started to, to build some crescendo here. And seven was a big peak for me personally, especially the later stages of this discussion. Uh, I definitely think we're rooting around the bottom of the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, and I'll see you back here soon for the next one.